It is a complicated passage. And there's some commentators that I was reading that they were just like, no one knows what Paul means here. And I was like, great, I'm excited to preach about that. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago, I'm driving down Interstate 64 uh, through Southern Illinois, right? And it is God's country, you know, that big, beautiful prairie, flat, just as far as the eye can see, corn, it's wonderful. Uh, so we're driving down 64, and at some point, we're going under an overpass, and there's a sign that someone has like plastered to the overpass. It's like a homemade sign, and it says, fear God, obey. And I was like, whoa, serious. Um, so <laughs> I was like, first off, that feels a little heretical, or, or a little at least hypocritical, uh, because I'm pretty sure it's illegal to put your own signs on the interstate, right? They don't just let you do that. And then I was like, a little context would have been nice. Which God are you talking about? Might be helpful. You might want to do that sometime. Just check into it. But the thing that I didn't like the most about it is that I'm just cruising down the interstate, and I'm listening to some, like, 90s Midwest rock, having a great time, and all of a sudden, this confrontational sign just hits me, right? Fear God. Obey. I was like, dang, that is, that is harsh. But, you know, in all fairness... The law in the Bible is a little harsh. It is a little confrontational. But tonight, in our passage, when we read it, Paul is going to explain to us why that is. And it's not all a bad thing. Uh, it's actually a beautiful thing for the gospel, right? So we've been going through this series uh, of Galatians. We're going through Paul's letter. Um, and tonight, we're smack dab in the middle of the book, right? Chapter 3. So as a quick refresher, Paul is writing this letter... Uh, to the Galatian church because a group called the Judaizers, and they're called that because they were trying to implement the Jewish law uh, into the Galatian church. They're like, you know what? Jesus is all well and good. You need to have your sins forgiven. That's great. But if you really want to get God's favor, if you really want his blessing, you have to obey the law of the Old Testament, right? Um, and one of the things that they were saying that everyone needed to do if they were going to be Christians is they had to get circumcised. So uh, Josh has been in previous sermons calling them the circumcision party, which does not sound like a party to me. <laughs> if you have a little too much to drink, you will get cut off. And <sighs> let that one sit for a second. So uh, they, they were saying, listen. Jesus is all well and good, but if you want to get God's blessing, you have to do everything that's in the old ceremonial law. Everything that's in the Old Testament Mosaic law has to be done if you want God to favor you and bless you. And Paul is making the case that salvation, the blessing in God's favor, is not tied to their obedience to the law, but is given purely out of grace, out of faith in Jesus. That's it. And so in our passage tonight, Paul starts by saying, all right, Judaizers, you want to make your case out of the Old Testament? Well, I'll tell you what, I will use the Old Testament, and I will prove to you that you're wrong. So the first thing he does is in verse 15. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm going to use a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Um, so the first thing Paul is doing here is he's using a practical example, and he's going to tie it back to Abraham and Moses from the Old Testament, right? And we understand this. We understand what a will is, right? There's a reason people create legal documents uh, when they die, because they want their assets divided up how they want them divided up. They want their funeral planned the way they want them planned. And if they don't say that anyone can do anything, people are going to fight over who gets the house. People are going to fight over who gets Aunt Bessie's old crock pot. People are going to uh, plan the funeral however they want to plan it and just say, well, it's what he would have wanted. Right? And, and so we know that there's a reason why people create legal documents called wills. Now, the Greek word that's being used here for will is diatheke. 
And it does uh, mean uh, a will, as in the last one testament, but it is also translated in other parts of the Bible as a covenant. And so what Paul is going to do is he is going to tie the idea of an unchangeable legal will to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So just a little refresher on that covenant that God made with Abraham, right? God promised, uh, particularly in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, he promised Abraham that he was going to have many descendants, even though Abraham was very old, right? And it didn't seem plausible, but God promised it to him. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give your people, your, your family, a land to live in. You might call it a promised land. Uh, he says, I am going to uh, bless the entire world through your family. Those are my promises. And in the ancient Near East, uh, they did contracts a little different than we do today, right? Today, we put everything in writing, we have the two parties sign on the dotted line, and that's how we do a contract. It's not how they did them back then. What they would do is they would take an animal, they would split it in half, and they would put the two halves uh, and form a path between those two halves, and then the people that were uh, making the agreement to ratify the covenant, they would walk through those pieces of animal together. And it was as if they were saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. May I be split in two. May I be destroyed if I don't fulfill my side of the contract, right? And so in Genesis 15, we see the Lord reiterate his promise to Abraham. And Abraham's like, listen, God, I'm getting pretty old now. Like, I don't, how do I know you're actually going to keep your word on this? And God says, I tell you what, get some animals. Let's split them in half. And Abraham knew what that meant. And so Abraham does it. He gets some animals. He splits them in half. He's ready to walk with God through these pieces of animals to ratify the covenant. But when the time comes, God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And instead, the presence of God himself walks through those animals. And it is as if God is saying, Abraham, this covenant does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on your obedience. It doesn't depend on your worthiness. I alone will be held accountable for what I'm promising to you. And if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be destroyed. And you know what? If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, may I be destroyed. My promises will come to pass. All you need to do is believe me. So here in Galatians, Paul is saying that God made that promise to Abraham and he ultimately fulfilled it in Christ. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom God has blessed the entire world now. Jesus is the one who has now made the Galatians and us spiritual descendants of Abraham. You remember that song, Father Abraham had many sons? Many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. We're not like, some of us are not flesh and blood descendants of Abraham. But we are spiritual descendants because we are children of the promise. We're children of faith. We are part of the family of faith. So then we get to verse 17, and Paul says, my point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, he's saying 430 years after the promise to Abraham. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant that's previously established by God, and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So what Paul is saying is that when God gave the law to Moses and the Israelites 430 years after the promise to Abraham, just like a legal will can't just be changed after someone dies just because you want to, right? God wasn't giving the law to, to uh, take over for the promise, right? God wasn't giving the law to replace the promise, the contract, the covenant with Abraham. 
The law was never given to Moses and the Israelites to replace it. And, and also, Paul is arguing here that salvation by faith in God's promise and salvation to obedience by the law, those things can't coexist. So the thing that Paul is saying, the thing that the Judaizers are saying, he's like, those are mutually exclusive. It cannot happen. The Judaizers were saying that God's blessing and our righteousness is conditional, right? It's based on whether or not we obey and how well we obey. Paul is saying that God's blessing and our righteousness is based on an unconditional promise made by God. Those two things can't both be true. It is either grace or works. But if we're being honest, uh, maybe we like to pretend like they're both true, right? We like to double dip a little bit, don't we? We come here and we sing about Jesus and we proclaim our need for grace and we proclaim our trust in God. But let me ask you something. What's your first thought when something goes really wrong in your life? When you get laid off from work, when your friends betray you, when you feel attacked, when you're at odds with your significant other and it's not looking good, when you can't seem to get the attention of the person you would really like to be your significant other, right? When you come face to face with the consequences of your addiction, uh, when your family member gets sick, when you get sick, when your house is falling apart, when your finances are in shambles, what is your first thought? Is it, what did I do to deserve this? Is it, God, why are you punishing me? God, what do I need to do to get out of this? Like, if you get me out of this, I will fill in the blank. When life gets difficult, it usually brings up the beliefs that we kind of hide deep down in our hearts. And uh, many of us, deep down, when push comes to shove, believe that our circumstances are based on what we do, on our obedience, our behavior, and that God's blessing depends on our obedience. And it turns out that deep down, many of us live by the law and not by grace in our deepest heart of hearts, right? So get it from a different angle. What's your first thought when you witness someone say or do something distasteful, right? Uh, when that team member is not putting in their fair share of work on the project you guys are working on. Um, when someone you know says something offensive to you. When that friend always has excuses for never paying you back uh, when you loan them money. When those people let that loud, dirty kid run around and scream all over the restaurant when you're just trying to have a nice meal in peace. Uh, when you catch your friend in a lie, talking behind your back. Is your first instinct to judge them according to their actions and then condemn them in your heart? I say this not because I'm guessing, I say this from experience, right? What are the things that make you roll your eyes? What are the things that make you sneer? What makes you want to gossip about somebody and complain about them behind their back? If you think about those things in your life, those are signs of, of your judgment on them. Signs where you are applying the law to other people and making yourself the judge. Again, deep down, we seem to often be really law people instead of grace people. And even if we don't want the law to apply to us and our faults, right? Grace for me, please. Law for them. Aren't we, aren't we pretty good at that? And just a little aside here. The Galatians passage uh, is talking specifically about the Judaizers and their uh, application of the Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament to the Galatians. But this is really something, this idea of like judging people by a law or a moral code, this is something that everyone, everywhere, and every time does. Right? We all have some sort of cultural, social, moral code that we believe and we judge other people when they do not abide by it, right? Whether you're a religious person or not, you have some kind of code in your heart and you judge other people by whether or not they're abiding by that code that you believe, right? 
there, there's a popular paraphrase of uh, an old theologian named Martin Luther that says, religion is the default mode of the human heart. And religion meaning the creation of some kind of law and then judging yourself and others by it, right? Trying to earn uh, your self-worth by creating some system of law that you can judge other people and yourself by, right? So we're all creating laws in our head and hearts all the time, and usually the laws we create are the ones that make us look good and make other people look bad, right? No matter who you are, you want to make yourself feel righteous according to what you believe and do, and you want to judge others for not living up to the standard that you made up in your head, right? Religious people do it, atheists do it, conservatives do it, progressives do it, city people do it, county people do it. Everyone does it. And you don't need to read the news or watch TikTok very long to find examples of self-righteousness run amok, right? Often these days, self-righteous people are online and they are violent. Uh, they are full of vitriol. They're vicious in their condemnation of others. And even people who claim to be non-judgmental uh, are often judgmental of people who they see as judgmental, right? I'll take that sentence a different way. Uh, Tim Keller says, if you're intolerant of people you think are intolerant, you're still intolerant, right? All that to say everyone Everyone is judging everyone else by some kind of moral or social code. It's baked into our DNA. We can't escape it. So back to Galatians. Paul has made the argument that because God made the promise of grace by faith to Abraham, the law was never meant to be a means for us earning our own blessings and righteousness. He's like, that's not what the law was for. So the next question is, well, if that's not what the law is for, then what is the law for? If I can't use it to earn my own righteousness, if I can't earn my way through obeying, then what's the point, God? That's a good question. This is the right natural question that comes next. And Paul anticipates it. And historically, he answers it through our, our passage. Historically, there are three ways to use the law of God rightly. So the first one is that the law shows our need for salvation. The law shows our need for salvation. See verse 21 and 22. It says, Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. So Paul here is saying that while the law was not given to replace the promise of faith and grace, it's actually also not the enemy of faith and grace, right? They actually work together. They're supposed to work together, hand in hand. The law was given to drive people to grace. While we're, we're all trying to use the law to, to prove how good we are, to earn our self-righteousness, right? That's not what the, the Lord meant for it at all. He meant to prove how big of sinners we are by giving us the law. The law takes right and wrong, godliness and sinfulness, and it gives them definition, Right? It gives us concrete examples of real actions, real behavior that would indicate our rebellion against God and our need for a savior, right? And then it holds the mirror up to us so that we can't escape. We have to look this right and wrong, this black and white dead in the eye. We can't escape that. So uh, now here's where things get a little complicated. Some people would define sin as breaking God's law, right? You say, 
give me a definition for sin. And someone would say, well, it is breaking God's law. And that, man, back in the day, there was like an old infomercial that was on at like two in the morning. And it was this guy named Ray. And he was like, I'm going to teach you how to evangelize. It was him and this sitcom star from the eighties. And they would run around the city and they would just like run up to some lady and be like, have you ever told a lie? And she's like, what? And they go, have you ever told a lie? She's like, yes. They said, have you, uh, did you know you were breaking God's law? You are a sinner. And she's like, get out of my face. And that's how all of them ended. Like, I don't think anyone ever got saved through this show, but they're like, we're going to teach you how to evangelize. Um, so they were saying, you know what? Sin is breaking God's law. Uh, sin is breaking the rules, and we're going to use that to evangelize to people. And, and sin being defined as breaking the, the law of God is true, sort of. But here's the thing. Uh, it goes deeper than that. It's more pervasive than that. That is scratching the surface. Sin is not fundamentally about doing wrong things or breaking arbitrary rules on an ancient list, right? Sin is deeper. It is more pervasive at its core. Sin is refusing to acknowledge that God is God and instead looking to created things to provide for us what only God can provide. Or put another way, sin is believing that it is our right to choose our own saviors or to be our own saviors. That's the core of it. Jesus himself starts to show us this a little bit. He starts to, to open our eyes to how the law is a little bit deeper than we like to believe in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Uh, he says, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You might have heard of that one. You've heard it said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. And then he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. It's another Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, yes, there is a law that is written in the Ten Commandments, but the rule is pointing to what's actually going on in your heart, right? It's the sin under the sin. Jesus says, yes, murder, bad, absolutely. But if you hate somebody, if you denigrate another person, that is pointing to the same sin in your heart that the murder is pointing to. Adultery, yes, bad. But if you are thinking lustful thoughts about somebody else, that is pointing to the exact same source of sin that the adultery is, right? It goes deeper than just breaking the rule. Now, the Ten Commandments, some people point out, are actually rooted in the first commandment, right? They're all just coming out of that first commandment, and that's the, that's the kind of like source commandment. And that one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the truth is that we are breaking that first commandment every second of every day. And the other commandments kind of help create a trail that we can use to prove that to ourselves. So uh, Josh preached about this for a couple weeks, uh, uh, and I'm just going to jump on, on his back here. We have all sorts of idols in our lives, right? An idol isn't necessarily a statue or a piece of wood that you light a candle to and pray. Uh, an idol is anything that you put in your life, that you have in your life, that you trust to functionally save you, right? And what I mean by that is you are trusting in it to give you soul-level satisfaction, identity, worth, and theologian Richard Kies says that there are all sorts of, like, we can turn anything into an idol. And he calls them all surface idols, right? So um, you could turn anything into uh, something that you're trusting uh, to make you whole again. Money, family, career, sex, food, lots of things. But if you follow the trail, 
it will lead back to one of four source idols that are going to be at the root of your heart. Four things that you are trusting more than anything else to give you the things that only God can give you. Power, control, approval, comfort. So here's the thing. All these things, the surface idols, the source idols, all of them can be good things. Can be good gifts given by God for us to enjoy, to glorify him, to help other people, right? They can all be good things. But because they can be good things, uh, it is very tricky when we turn them into ultimate things, when we turn them into idols. We are master manipulators of ourselves, right? We are very good at putting on the blinders and making sure that we never have to really look and see how bad we are, right? The mental and moral gymnastics, we are well-practiced in making sure we never have to confront our own sin. So it's the law, then, that helps us in these moments to have something concrete. It's not the law that's at the root of the sin, but it's the thing that's the trigger that shows us there's something wrong, right? When you break one of God's laws, you say, what caused me to do that? And how can I follow that trail back to the source of the sin in my heart? Let's take an example, right? Let's take an example of how you follow the trail of the law to the source of your sin. So let's say you're in a parking lot and I know all of us are pro drivers and we would never do this, but let's say you're in a parking lot and you uh, take a little bit of a sharp turn and you clip somebody's mirror and you break it off, right? You're like, well, that's not good. I'm gonna go park somewhere else and I'm gonna get out of here. So you do that, you park, you get out of the car, you're walking into the building and the person who owns the car comes out and they're like, what happened to my car? Did you do this? And you're like, nope. And you just keep walking on, right? What did you do right there? You broke the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness, right? Shouldn't tell a lie. Uh, but that's not the end of it, right? We can follow a path and figure out that there's more to it than just that. Why did you break the law? What is it that you were truly after, right? Maybe you were worried that you were going to have to uh, pay for the repairs or that your insurance was going to go up if you admitted default, right? And so it turns out that actually money is an idol for you. But money's never the end goal, right? So let's take it a little bit further. Let's keep following the trail. What is the money buying you that you really want, right? Maybe the money is buying you control. If you have enough money in your bank account, you feel like you're in control of things enough, right? No matter what circumstances come at you, you're like, I'm gonna be okay. I have enough money to take care of this. And so what you really want is to feel like you're in control of your life and the money helps you do that, right? Or maybe the money allows you to fill your life with comforts that prevent you from having to deal with the actual hard things, right? If I can numb myself enough with Netflix and food and drink and whatever else, if I can numb myself enough and spend my money on that, then I won't have to face the hardships of life, and that's what I'm really trusting to make me okay, right? Or maybe the thought of losing money uh, would make your spouse very angry with you. And what you really crave, the thing that you think actually makes you okay to soul level is your spouse's approval of you. And so if they would be disappointed or angry at you, it would shatter you, right? Or maybe use money to buy stuff that you think makes you feel important. What you want is power. You want status. You want people to respect you. So you spend money on all the status symbols that would make people respect you. you know, big glass house, white Ferrari, sloppy steaks at Trefani's. You crave the power that comes from social positioning and respect. You're using the money that way, right? It turns out that the reason you sinned in the first place, the reason you broke the law is because you desperately crave something down in your heart. You have an idol that you are worshiping, right? When you follow the trail, that's what the law is showing us. And so here's the thing about this. This could take a million paths, right? The idolatry, the layers could be infinite. 
But what this does is it prevents you, when you're tempted to look at the Ten Commandments and say, listen, I don't really break a lot of these, right? I'm not that bad of a person. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I, you know, I barely lie ever, every now and again. But so what? Like, this takes that idea that I'm not really a bad person because I don't break every Ten Commandment, and it says that that's not the problem. The problem is that your heart is wayward, right? The problem is that you are trusting and serving idols 24-7. You are denigrating God and his worthiness all the time. You are denouncing his ownership of the world and his kingship over your life all the time. And the law just helps you see it, right? If you have the God-given humility and the sight to look. So that's number one. That's number one use of the law is it helps to see kind of how deep the sin goes and make us realize our deep, deep need for a savior, right? So number two, uh, the second use is the law restrains sin. And we see this in verse 24. Paul says, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. So Paul here is saying that one of the purposes of the law was to be a guardian, for us until Jesus could come, right? And that word guardian, some translations instead use the word schoolmaster or tutor, but theologian N.T. Wright translates it as something more of a babysitter, right? So when I was in college, we would end many, many nights for a couple years at Denny's, like three or four nights a week, it's embarrassing. So the great thing about Denny's was if the night was like closing down uh, at like 11 p.m., Denny's was open. If the night was kind of winding down at like 3 a.m., Denny's was open, right? It was always there for us, like an old friend. And so, like seriously, three or four nights a week, uh, several of us would hang out there, and we got to know the overnight wait staff pretty well, right? So like one guy was like, I got to move, and uh, we were like, we'll help you. So we just show up at the waiter's house and help him move the next day. Uh, There's one guy that was going to move back to Hawaii, and we threw him a big going away party. It was great. So one night, we're hanging out at Denny's, and the, one of the waitresses that we had a lot comes over and says, like, guys, I got a weird question for you. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? And we're like, I don't know. This guy's got class, but the rest of us are free. What's up? And she goes, I, I would not ask this if I had not already asked everybody else, and no one is available, but I have an appointment I cannot miss. Can you watch my kids for an hour? And we were like, ooh. Uh, we're just like three 20-year-old dudes. I don't know if that's a good idea. But she was like, I can't pay you, but if you do this, then it is free coffee and Dr. Pepper from here on out. And we were like, we're in. Uh, so all's well that ends well, right? We show up the next day, kids play outside for an hour. It's great. No one died. Now, the question out of that is why would a very nice lady... Uh, want to uh, rather trust her kids to three 20-year-old dudes than have them be alone for an hour? And the answer is the destructive power of children and their propensity for self-harm, right? Now, children are wonderful. Children are a blessing. But at the same time, like, if you have had them, you know this. Uh, when, When they get old enough to be able to grab things with those grimy little hands, what do they do with it the first thing when they grab it, right? They put it in their mouth immediately. Doesn't matter if it's rocks, doesn't matter if it's a dead bird, doesn't matter if it's a box full of thumbtacks, it's going in the mouth, right? And so then they get a little older, they do not walk, they run, but they're not very good at running. So they fall all the time and they run into stuff and their legs are full of bruises and they've got scrapes and they'll just walk in with a gash on their head and you're just like, how did that happen? But 
Then they get a little older than that and they're running around with their friends and every room they run into, all of a sudden, toys are on the floor. The lamp is broken into five pieces and they just run around and cause mass chaos everywhere, right? That's just the way it works. That is the destructive and self-harm power of children. But let's be honest, uh, so it is with the rest of us in the grand scheme of things, right? Uh, We are all susceptible to self-destruction and violence and chaos, right? Right before this, we were in a series on Genesis and it did not paint a rosy picture of humanity, you know? Like right after Adam and Eve fall, like almost immediately, one of their sons kills another one. And then it's not very long after that where God's like, this place is so terrible and violent, I'm just gonna flood it and start over. And so he does. And then after that, we read about Abraham and his family, and like there were some real weird conflicts there. And there were these kingdoms that were fighting back and forth in war. And then we see Sodom and Gomorrah. They were so violent and so oppressive to the poor that God said, we just need to destroy them. Like, not a great picture of humanity before the law, right? We're not that good at at being uh, good people when completely left to our own devices. So God gave the law to the Israelites to help restrain them from sinning to their maximum potential and to protect them from self-destruction until the Messiah could come, right? God had promised that the Messiah, the Christ, was gonna come through Abraham's family and he needed to protect them from self-destruction until it was time for that promise to be completed. So that's why he gave the law. And in some ways, the civil law for us works in the same way, right? Certainly the law is not perfect and there are absolutely some laws that are very unjust, absolutely. But there are also some laws that are in place that really do help uh, protect people and serve some measure of justice in our society, right? And I I think there's no doubt that having a civil law restrains some people from acting on their worst impulses, right? Sometimes me. So the second use of the law is just to keep us all from going completely off the rails. But the second use of the law is based on fear, right? Right? Why do I not break the law? Because I'm afraid of getting a ticket. I'm afraid of being punished. I'm afraid of going to prison. That's why I don't, it's fear. And that fear and punishment are really the only two tools that the law has to try to work with anybody, right? It's all uh, stick and no carrot. But there is one final use of the law that works completely differently. And that's because in this third use, the law works out of a completely different motivation. I'll show you what I mean. The third use of the law and final use of the law is the law teaches us how to live. Verse 24 uh, says the law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So the law was like our guardian, and remember, that word can be translated schoolmaster or teacher, right? The law is teaching us what God's character is like. It's giving us an idea of who God is, right? Who we were made to imitate, So God is always truthful, so we should always be truthful. God is always faithful to people, so we should always be faithful to people. The law teaches us how we ought to live so that even after we become believers, after we become children of the promise, grace in Christ, we can still learn what the characteristics of God are that we can imitate, right? And the problem is, the law can teach us and it can show us, but it cannot give us the power to actually do it, right? That power, that motivation to actually obey, to actually live in the ways of Christ, has to come from somewhere else. I want to tell you about a, a guy that was, uh, he's a, a, an 18th century hymn writer. His name was William Cooper, and he's a fascinating character. So William Cooper grew up in a very affluent family. 
but it was a very strict religious household, right? Uh, he was very well acquainted with the law and with the wrath of God. And surprise, surprise, when he was a young man, he became afflicted uh, with pretty crippling anxiety and deep depression. And those dark clouds did not really lift uh, for much of his life. But there were two periods during his life when the clouds did lift a little bit. And during those moments, he had profound experiences with grace and with Christ. And one of those times was when a new pastor came to town. And so the new pastor uh, shows up, he meets William Cooper, and he knows of William Cooper. He says, you know, I've heard this guy's a really great poet, but I've also heard that he has struggles, you know, with deep depression. So this pastor says, you know what, I'm going to propose to him that we work on a, a book of hymns together, a book of songs. And so that way, I will get a chance to just see him frequently if we work on this together. Uh, it'll give him something to keep him occupied. Maybe that'll be a healthy way to help him. Uh, plus, maybe the church will benefit by us writing a book of songs together. So he proposes it, and William Cooper says, yeah, I'm, I can do that. So they start working on this book of hymns together. And that pastor's name uh, was John Newton. And you may have heard of one of his hymns called Amazing Grace. Um, now, William Cooper also wrote some really beautiful songs for that hymn book. Um, uh, God moves in a mysterious way. There is a fountain filled with blood. But he wrote this one hymn that just has always captivated me called A Love Constraining to Obedience. And I feel like it really beautifully describes how this third use of the law works, how motivation through grace actually helps us to live out lives that, that uh, imitate God, lives that help us to obey the law in healthy ways, right? So he starts out like this. He says, no strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. What he's saying here is that nobody, nobody, nobody can obey the law perfectly. None of us keep all the commandments. None of us fully trust God. And he says that even the strength that we do have, we're using it totally wrong. We're using our strength to try to, to work out our own self-righteousness, right? We're trying to obey our way into God's favor. We're trying to save ourselves because we don't have a clear understanding of Christ. Well, then he goes to the next verse. He says, how long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but I toiled without success. Oh, he says, how long I tried to obey. Trying to live by the law was breaking him. It was destroying him. He says, I was in bondage and distress, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it. The law makes you a slave. It demands everything of you, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. And so it turns out it actually demands more than you can give. But in the next two verses, things start to get interesting. He starts to contrast his experience with the law that's motivated by fear versus his experience with the law that's motivated by grace. He says, then, meaning under the law, to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. But now, under grace, if I feel its power, sin's power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. I was trying to work for my own righteousness. But now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What he's saying is that when he was living his life under fear of the law, he could not stop sinning. Why? Because what he loved was his sin. He loved it and he trusted it to make him feel like he's okay. And because he loved and trusted it, he couldn't stop it. Guys, you ever feel like, like what he's writing right here? Like, have you ever tried really hard not to sin and you just couldn't stop? Right? You say, I know I shouldn't, but I really want to hate that person that wronged me. 
I know I shouldn't, but I really want to take comfort in those images and videos on my phone. I know I shouldn't, but I want to get wasted with my friends and do dumb things and just numb myself from the hardships of the world. I know I shouldn't, but I want to manipulate other people to get my own way. I know I shouldn't, but I want to make everyone around me feel worse so that I can feel better. Right? Friends, if sin and self are what you truly love, then you will always serve them because you will always serve and worship what you truly love. If sin and self are what you truly love, you will always serve them because you always worship and serve what you truly love. A little sidetrack here. We're going to go from an old hymn writer to an old theologian, a guy named Thomas Chalmers. He wrote a little article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He was a scientist, cool guy. And uh, he said, listen, nature abhors a vacuum. Well, guess what? So does, so does the human heart. The human heart abhors a vacuum. It has to attach itself to something. It has to have something that it is trusting, loving, serving, worshiping all the time. You can't do without it, right? You can't not worship something all the time, 24-7. And he said, all right, so you, we all have this. And if it's, a, if it's a created thing, it's idolatry. It's sin. All of us have idols in our hearts that we are trusting and worshiping all the time for sin. And here's the problem. You can't work your way out of that. You can't, by sheer force of will, by self-discipline, you can't stop loving those things. and You can't stop sinning, right? The only way to remove those, those idols from the seats of our hearts is for them to be replaced by a greater affection. As much as you love something else, some created thing, some idol, the only way for them to be replaced and the throne of your heart is to be replaced by a greater affection. And the Bible says that the only affection, the only love that can drive out every idol and every sin from your life is the love of Christ. His great love for us, the richness of his grace, his faithfulness to us as he died in our place on a bloody cross, right? The glory of his resurrection, the great gospel of the living Christ is powerful enough to expel our sin from our hearts and replace it with a greater love for Jesus. When you see clearly what he's done for you, when you experience the fullness of his grace, when you soak in the richness of his love for you, it causes you to then love him back because you can see that he is more worthy of your trust and your affection than anything else in the world including the precious sin that you have loved for so long. The expulsive power of a new affection for Jesus gives you the power to actually change. And that's what I want. I, I hope that's what you want. We want to change, right? We want to be better. We want to be more like Christ. We want to glorify God. We need to and we want to change. The only way to do it is by the affection for Jesus Christ replacing every other affection that would vie for your heart's throne. So when we apply this idea to the law and the gospel, right, we, let's look at the idea of someone that's living out of the law, trying to obey and earn their own righteousness versus someone that's living out of grace and love. Their lives may look very similar, right? This one over here, sometimes they sin, sometimes they obey. This one over here, sometimes they sin, sometimes they obey. But the motivations are completely opposite. And so the way that they experience their lives is completely opposite. Back to that verse from our hymn. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do, but now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. For the person that's living under the law, they are trying so hard uh, to obey, but what they really love is their sin, so they're spending all their time, all their effort, trying not to do the things that they really want to do and trying to do things that they don't really care about, right? Right? But if you are motivated by love and grace, if your greatest love is Jesus, 
then you truly want to obey and trust him. You want to live in the ways of Christ and glorify him because what he has done for you proves that he is supremely trustworthy, right? And when you see sin intruding in your life, you don't look at it longingly because you don't love it the most. You, when you are living by grace, you see the sin in your life and you want it to be expelled as quickly as possible. You feel you hate it too, right? It's a, a different way of looking at the law, of looking at your obedience, of looking at your behavior. Here's the last verse of our hymn, and it's the real kicker. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child. And duty into choice. When we truly experience grace, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we can see that the ways we have been living are the ways of slavery. We have been in bondage and distress. We have worked and worked and worked and yet we have never been really loved by this, these idols that we've served. But because of what Jesus has done, we can be adopted by the God of the universe who does not treat us like slaves but treats us like beloved children. And friends, children don't have to work and work and work for their parents' love. Children don't have to wonder whether or not their parents actually love them if they've done enough. They don't have to jockey with everybody else for position, hoping that they can get favor and blessing from God. No. Children are given unconditional love. And that's what the Lord is offering you through Christ. That's what he's offering us through grace. That he would make us children. And we see it in verse 26 of our passage. It says, for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. May that be us tonight. May we stop trying to live and judge everybody else and try to make ourselves feel better and look better by, by what we do, right? By trying to obey the law or obey the social codes of whatever group we're in. May we stop judging everybody else all the time. May we live by grace where we don't have to prove anything because our God loves us unconditionally and has proven it by sending his own son to die on our behalf, to see the law by Christ fulfilled. He has done the thing we cannot do. And yet, he has also taken the punishment that we deserve so that we can be treated as children. May it be so for us tonight, friends. Let's pray.